Welcome to the Abundant Life Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Stephen Kiley. For more information about Abundant Life Church, please visit www.abundantlifechurch.org. We want to go into part two of something I started a couple weeks ago. And for us old timers, I can see the clock right back there. Man, the letters are a foot and a half tall. Brother Cliff, not that it'll matter any. It'll just, I'll just know how long I went over. Yeah. So, um, I want to talk tonight, I, I actually put a title on this, uh, In the Valley of Decision. And we're studying from um, the book of Ezra, Nehemiah. We, we looked at those two books uh, two weeks ago realized that they were really written as one, and they really deal a lot with the time we're living in. Uh, no, not many people think of it, that, those books, that way. They really looked at their centered in Israel's history, not in their future. So I'm just going to ask you to be seated. I want to talk to you for a little bit before we read our scripture. When we look at this, this period of time, uh, there's a lot going on in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, you think about Haggai and Zechariah were contemporaries of Ezra and Nehemiah. You look at Esther. She was also contemporary in Persia. There's a, a lot going on in, in that particular period of time. We look at Daniel. We know that he went from the Babylonian Empire and was still alive when the Persian Empire conquered the Babylons, uh, Babylonians. And the prophecies he brought back for the future, Daniel alone, not to mention Ezekiel, Daniel's 70 weeks, the image that uh, Daniel saw that portrayed the different empires from their time all the way to the end. We look at Ezekiel, another prophet that talked a lot about the end times, So when we look at Ezra and Nehemiah, we should not be surprised that there's prophecy concerning the day that we're living in there. Now, I know that during winter camp, uh, I cannot remember the preacher's name. He spoke on Thursday night. He went back to 2 Thessalonians 4. I have a great memory, but it's really short, and you'll know who I'm talking about. Nope. Trees, yes. I can't remember. Why I can't remember that name? Uh, but anyways, he went to this scripture, and I want to start there tonight. In Second Thessalonians two, Second Thessalonians four, verse two, chapter two, it says this. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ has come. Let no one deceive you by any means for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition." who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. 
Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish. Boy, does this fit right in to the day we're living in. Because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved, and for this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe a lie. That they, be all, that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. I could speak tonight just on that, those few verses because I've been saying to myself, how can anybody in their right mind believe some of the things that are being spread? Well, the Bible's talking about in the end times that because people do not receive a love for the truth, they're going to be open to deception, and they will openly believe a lie. But that's not where I want to go tonight. I want to actually go beyond Ezra and Nehemiah, and I want to go to Joel. Now, many of us look at Joel uh, because it was quoted in the second chapter of the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. About the... Oh, I thought she was talking to me. About the infilling of the Holy Ghost. This is, remember Peter said, this is what the prophet Joel prophesied. Well, Joel, in his book, spends a lot of time talking about the end times, not just the outpouring of the Spirit. He mentions in Joel, and I'm going to be at the third chapter, verse 13. He writes this, Put ye in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, get you down, for the press is full, the fats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Now, we're not talking about prosperity in this verse. They have filled the vats with wickedness and evil. And then he says in verse 14, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of of decision. I'm going to tell you, tonight, we all live in the valley of decision. The Bible tells us to make up our mind, for the day is short. Now it goes on in verse 15. Now you'll recognize this. The sun and the moon shall be darkened, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. John mentions that in Revelation. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion, and utter his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth shall shake, but the Lord will be the hope of his people and the strength of his children, the children of Israel. So shall you know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy, and there shall no strangers pass through her any more. And like I said, the prophet Joel sees a lot from the end time. Um, 
And then I want to go back to the first chapter, because now he talks, Joel, in the very first chapter that he writes, talks about something so terrible that nothing's happened like it on the face of the earth till now. It says, uh, Joel 1 and 1, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, all you elders. Listen, all who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days? Or in the days of your ancestors? Tell it to your children, and let your children tell it to their children, and their children to the next generation. This is a warning that Joel is giving to those of Israel, telling them, pay attention, listen to what I'm saying. He's prophesying divine revelations that were going to come to pass in the end times. He goes on and compares a plague that's, it must have happened during his time because he refers to it, but the plague that it would be a type of would be much worse. It goes on to say in verse 4, What? The locust swarm has left. The great locust have eaten. What the great locust have left, the young locust have eaten. What the young locust have left, other locust have eaten. Wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Now, these things have come to pass following the book of Nehemiah. Now, something has happened in Nehemiah that we need to go back and look at because it's, it's the predecessor to something that takes place in our generations. Um, I want to just finish three more verses before I go back to Nehemiah. It goes on in verse 8, Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. Notice what he says in verse 9, the meat offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the Lord, the priest, the Lord's ministers mourn. I want to point that out because this happened in the book of Nehemiah. The field is wasted, the land mourneth, for the corn is wasted, the new wine is dried up, the oil languisheth. Be ye ashamed, O you husbandmen, howl, O you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. Going to verse, um, uh, I got the second chapter, verse 11, in, in Joel says this, The Lord utters his voice before his army, and his host is exceedingly great. He that executes his words, powerful. And notice what he says, For the day of the Lord is great, and very terrible, and who can endure it? Now, you remember the Bible in the New Testament, and I believe it was Jesus speaking. He says, unless those days be shortened, 
No flesh should be saved concerning the tribulation or the end times. And here we have Joel saying the same thing. And the theme that you're going to find in the book of Joel, besides the outpouring of the Holy Ghost, is the day of the Lord is coming. Judgment is coming, but God will reward the faithful. Now, Nehemiah and Ezra lived during the 5th century B.C. Uh, so the events in Joel are reflecting things and comparing them to things which are happening in our generation. Let's, let's go back for a moment and review a little bit from our last study. And the name of that lesson was called A Nail in His Holy Place. And we had talked about that several weeks ago, what that meant. In that study, there were four major players. There was a man named Zerubbabel. If you remember, Zerubbabel uh, brought people back from the Babylonian area under the auspice of the Persian Empire to once again rebuild the city of Jerusalem and build a temple. That was his purpose. In, in what was taking place, he was going to establish a city and a temple. But then there was another person that followed after him. His name was Ezra. His purpose was to bring the law and educate the people that had been living in Babylon about worship and what the Lord required. Because for those 70 years they were there, many of them had forgotten. So he brought the word. Then we have another man named Nehemiah. What was his purpose? He came to build a wall of separation which provides protection from God's enemies. And then we have a man called Joel. Now Joel follows right along those other three, and he comes to remind those who have allowed sin to enter in again of God's impending judgment, not only in their day, but that great and terrible day of the Lord in the end times. Remember, I really believe that this was all prophetic of something was, that was going to happen at a latter time. Because if we look at these men, who could they represent in the New Testament? Who do we know that was the forerunner before the word came? John the Baptist. I think Zerubbabel was a type of John the Baptist. He led people away from sin. Babylon type of sin. He led them to the place of their land, their homeland, God's gift to them. Uh, he helped them restore health, heartfelt repentance and helped build the temple, build the house of God. Now Ezra brings back truth. He's a type of the word. And the word was made flesh and was born and came among us. I think that Ezra was almost a type of Christ. He instructed them in what God required of each and every one of them. But now, who is Nehemiah? What, what role does Nehemiah play? He's a builder of holiness. I believe he's a type of the Holy Spirit after the words preached, after Christ ascended into heaven, who came? The Spirit of truth. You shall receive power after the Holy Ghost comes upon you. 
What is an attribute of the Holy Spirit? Separation. Come you out from among them and be separate. Don't touch the unclean thing. So I find that Joel is almost like John the Revelator, the book of Revelation, warning the people of what's about to come upon them, something so dreadful, so terrible that they could not even imagine it because nothing like it has ever happened in Earth's history. So it's almost, a, uh, it's almost an introductory to the New Testament. Now, when we go back and look at Nehemiah, something happens right after he goes back to Persia. I have to remind you that when Nehemiah was given commission by the king of Persia, he was only given permission to come to Israel for 12 years. There was a time limit, time limit on that. So after 12 years in Jerusalem, building the wall uh, and making sure that there was separation and help establishing covenants, which would help in the protection from their enemies, after 12 years he left everything and it was going really well. When up to that point, the people of Israel were maintaining separation. There was a quite a bit of an investment in that original construction. When you think about the investment of not only labor and money and reestablishing the city of Jerusalem and the temple, and if you look at all the hard work that came in building the walls and reestablishing that which was torn down. It was phenomenal. When I look at the New Testament and I see the sacrifice that was laid down by Christ and the apostles, I see the major investment in what we're living in today. There was a price to pay. But and under Nehemiah, Everyone worked together as a team. It was one dynamic team that was well-organized, well-disciplined. And they came through great persecution and intimidation by those who were not of Israel. Now, when Zerubbabel brought these first 50,000 back, I think it was 50,000 back from, from Babylon, he came to an area that was full of compromise. Remember that Nebuchadnezzar had left some stragglers there, from, uh, some Jewish stragglers there, when he took the main, uh, main group of people back to Babylon. They were to care for the vines and some of the, the crops. Well, these people during that 70-year period had intermarried. And when you talk about the Samaritans, that's where the Samaritans came from. They were half Jewish and they were, they were married to uh, Gentiles. And those people were not allowed to work in the construction. Because with their intermarriages, they'd also adopted the gods of the people that they married. Now, I don't know if you remember the name the Hornonites or the Ammonites. Most of you will pick up on the name of Ammonite. 
because we seem to hear that one more often than a Hornonite. Those are two groups of people that were of the land of Canaan. They were enemies to Joshua when they first came into the promised land, and they maintained that status all the way to the time that they, these, these Jewish captives came back again to reestablish themselves in promise. Now you'll find two of the leaders of those groups of people. One was Sanballat, the other one was Tobiah, and there was a third one. He was called Geshem. They were regional governors serving under the king of Persia. He had set them up. Um, actually, they'd been set up under Nebuchadnezzar, but the king of Persia took over what Babylon had established. So they were serving under the king of Persia. Now, Sanballat is called a Hornonite. Uh, he came from a city of, called Hornonim, which is in Moab. That's where Hornonim was located. Remember the Moabites resisted the Israelites when they came to, the Can the, to Canaan land. Now Tobiah was an Ammonite. Uh, they've been an is enemy of Israel uh, all the way from the beginning as well. They were governing an area east of the Jordan River. Now Gershon, the third one, he was an Arab. Uh, and he was most likely from the region of South Judah. Now these, I say this because these three individuals were the ones that were resisting Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel the most. Their whole thing was is they wanted a part with the work. They wanted to be part of what Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel was doing. But they were not allowed to because what, what uh, fellowship does uh, righteousness have with wickedness? These were the same old enemies that were seeking to do the same old thing that they'd always been doing against Israel. Now, before Nehemiah went back to Persia. There were six primary commitments that he made to the Dugians in the land of Israel to make an oath for. He wanted, if you go back and read from Nehemiah, he made them promise by oath not to do these six things. And that's actually in the 10th chapter of the book of Nehemiah if you want to go back and read that. But when Nehemiah comes back after um, a period of time, remember he left for 12 years, then he stayed then and was allowed to come back, he found that the Jews had virtually disobeyed every one of their oaths except for one, possibly one. Let me tell you the, the five or the six oaths that Nehemiah made them promise not to do. He made them promise not to intermarry with the people of the land. That's really important. We can see that happen with Solomon. When he married those people, those kings' wives or their daughters and made alliances with uh, people that were not Jewish or Israel, he fell uh, into sin. 
So they, were, they promised by oath that they would not intermarry with anybody of the land. They had promised to do no work on the Sabbath. They had promised to regularly give the required temple tax. They had to promise to take care of the provisions for the temple. Now this is important, such as the gathering of wood uh, and the needed sacrifice, the wheat offerings, the grain offerings, the oil, all the things that were needed to operate the temple. Then they were promised, they had to promise to give their firstborn back to the Lord. Their sons could be redeemed according to the law that way. And then the last one is they had to promise to be faithful to give the tithe that the Lord God had commanded to them. And everything was going smooth until he came back. I thought about this scripture. I can see Nehemiah coming back after that period of time and finding everything in disarray. <clears throat> and I see in Jesus talking in Luke 18, in verse chapter 18, verse 8, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. Now, I'm thinking about how does this refer back to our time? The apostles preached the message. The first hundred years, and it'd be 70 years after the death of Christ, roughly, there was great revival. But all of a sudden, things began to change. We entered the dark ages, and we have all these sorts of compromises, and things began to fall apart. And with Nehemiah's case, while he's gone, the wolves enter into the center of worship. They pollute the sanctuary. They drive the Levites out of the temple and make them work in the fields. So the ministry is ultimately pushed out of the place that they were set uh, in order to, uh, to fulfill. And in the place where you stored the offerings, Tobiah moves in. Now, let me read to you from Nehemiah, the 13th chapter, verse 4 and 5, to give you an idea of what's happened. Before this, Elishib, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. Now, notice what it says next. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Now, when I looked at some of the commentaries concerning this, Many believe that this priest had married the daughter of Tobiah, which would have been forbidden. So Tobiah more than likely was Elisha's father-in-law. Now notice what he did. It says, and he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and incense and temple articles and also the tithes of grain, the new wine, and the oil prescribed for the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. In other words, the priests had nothing to live off of. All the offerings were pushed out, and to, uh, Tobiah moved in and took over. And it just shows you what Sanballat and Tobiah's real intention was from the beginning. They wanted to drive out God's presence in the work 
and they wanted to take its place. He wanted to be the first type of the Antichrist. Now, he's not going to be the only type of Antichrist because we're going to talk about another one um, in just a moment, uh, Antiochus, that also was this, another type of the Antichrist. But there's going to be a third and final type of the Antichrist during our time. But when I see the, rev the relevance with Tobiah pushing out God's people from the temple and taking it over and really declaring himself as God, I see the same thing that's going to happen several more times before that great and terrible day of the Lord. Let's go back and look at some of the things that Sanballat and Tobiah had initially said when they were building the city. In verse 19, uh, they along with Gershom the Arab mocked Nehemiah saying, what is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Now, I'm telling you these things because history repeats itself over and over again. How it happened here and how it happened under Antiochus is the same way it's going to happen underneath the Antichrist. Are you rebelling against the king? Do you hear that already? Christians, today, we're already starting to feel the effect of it. They're not loyal to authority. They're they're following their own um, wicked ways and they don't stand with our country. Now when the construction, construction was taking place, their anger grew. The devil hates to see the church grow. When he sees the walls of holiness go up and when he sees the temple uh, built and worship established and people serving God, it just infuriates him. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews. I don't know what it is, but when people look at the church and they see its holiness, and they see its trustworthiness, they become infuriated. It's, it's, it's like they cannot stand to see someone that does not want to lie and live a righteous life. And what they do is they, he ridiculed the Jews. Do you ever feel like they ridicule the Christians? I believe so. You don't have to go far to hear some of the things that are said. It's always been Satan's desire to enter into the center of not only Israel's worship, but anything that involves the worship of God, whether it be the church or the Old Testament church. I want to talk to you a little bit about Antiochus. We call him Antiochus Epiphanes. Have you ever heard that, Antiochus Epiphanes? The Maccabees, the time of the Maccabees? That was about 175 to 164 BC. So about 175 years before Christ was born, this happened. He was the eighth ruler of the Seleucid Empire. His name was Antiochus, but he gave himself the surname. It was a name that he gave to himself called Epiphanes. 
So when people say Antiochus Epiphanes, Antiochus isn't his first, is his first name, but Epiphanes is not his last name. It's a title, which means, Epiphanes means the visible God. He declared himself to be the visible God on earth. It sounds just like what the Antichrist is going to do as well. He declared to the people that he was identical to the God of Jupiter, God Jupiter. And in 160, 168 BC, he devastated Jerusalem. He defiled the temple. He offered a pig on the altar. He erected an altar to Jupiter. Notice what he did. He prohibited temple worship. He forbade circumcision on the pain of death. He sold thousands of Jewish families into slavery. He destroyed all the copies of scriptures that could be found. And anyone found with a copy of the scriptures was tortured to death. And they were forced to renounce their religion. I, I see the same thing getting set up in this next generation. Or even the, the generation that we're living in now. Jesus said um, in Matthew 24, verse 15, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. He's already warning the people, Jesus, that this was, a, this was coming upon the earth. But watch out, because once that happens, just like in Nehemiah's time, when uh, Tobiah drove all these priests out and he filled the temple with all, all of his stuff, and he took the stuff that was God's and, and, and displaced it, Joel goes on to say that a great tribulation came upon those people. When they try to push God out of the church, when they start to do the same things that Tobiah did and Antiochus did, watch out because uh, tribulation is going to come. Matthew twenty four twenty one goes on to say, to finish that thought, for then there will be great tribulation such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time. Now, the scriptures are already talking about that, that last temple, the third temple. We have Herod's temple. We have the temple after the captivity that uh, Zerubbabel built. But there's going to be a third temple that's going to be constructed in Jerusalem. And actually, right now, they've, they're... They've got all the materials there. But remember, for this to happen, the exiles had to come back. Up until the 40s, there was no nation of Israel. 1940, no nation of Israel at all. There was just a penance of people living in Jerusalem that were Jewish. But the Bible foretold that God would bring his people back from the judgment 
sent upon them, and they would once again restore Israel. Now, if you want to read about that, um, about the preparation for the temple, you can go back and read things from the Temple Institute and the Temple Mount Faithful Movement. Those are places you can go on the internet and find out about the temple, preparations for the temple. Remember Ezekiel foretold, he said in Ezekiel 37 and 28, then the nations will know that I, the Lord, make Israel holy when my sanctuary is among them forever. And can you imagine the surprise of the Arabs when there, there was no Jewish nation and then in just a few years... And I think what really happened is under Hitler, under his great persecution, he drove many Jews back to Israel. Let me read you some of the prophecies concerning, remember Zerubbabel, now we're going to be talking about the Lord bringing people back to Jerusalem and see how they connect. Let me read some of those. I will bring my exiled people Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities and live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant Israel in their own land, never again to be uprooted from the land I give them. This is not talking about the time of Ezra because it says in this prophecy, they'll never be uprooted from their land again. So this is the final gathering. Then I go down to Isaiah 41 and 9. You, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, descendant of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its remotest parts and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. God has always planned to bring the Jewish people back to the land of Israel. And it's been the most notable thing in the history of our world, that a nation that has not existed for so long could come again and reestablish itself in such a short period of time and become a world power. It's unheard of, unless it's prophesied by God and what God says will come to pass. He's brought them from the four corners of the earth, just as the prophet said, Isaiah 43, 5 and 6. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up, and to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. We saw that prophecy fulfilled in the last generations. I'm a little older than 1948, I was born in 52, but I was only four years away from the establishment of Israel as a nation. Now let me show you how God has continued to do something. I went back and got numbers from immigration. I thought it would be fun to see, see how it's grown. In 1948, 101,000 828 people, Israelites, immigrated to Israel. In one year, they had 101,000 
828 Jews migrate to Israel. Do you know out of the 14.7 million uh, Jewish people that live in the world, 47% of them reside in Israel? Is that phenomenal? On New Year's Eve 2020, Israel's population stood at 9,291,000. That is more than a tenfold increase compared to when it was founded in 1848. Has God done what he said he was going to do? And so I, I know that God has got a plan. But we need to stand up and remember that we should not be discouraged or frightened because God has ordained these things to happen. And it will come to pass. Now, I thought about this on my way here. You know, I, I keep thinking about things uh, along the way. The 144,000, who could they represent at this last time? Who do you think? Ezra. Those 144,000 are dedicated preachers that go throughout the world preaching the message. And then you, you see how these things all fit together and how God has so orchestrated it so that we're not left in the dark. So that, that would be the second part of the first part that I preached a few weeks ago, but maybe you've never saw all these things in Ezra and Nehemiah and saw how Joel and Daniel and Ezekiel, all of these books fit together like a glove. It's almost like it has only one author. Yeah, I thought I'd throw that in there. But tonight it's, it's been a little different, but maybe I've given you something to think about. Um, there's been a great cost for what we have. We may not have been there in the early church, but we're the, the repairers of the wall. Because San Ballad and the world, or to the types of Tobiah, are trying to destroy what our forefathers have built. And until the Lord takes us out of the way, it's our job to make sure that the wheat offerings, the oil offerings, the incense, all that stuff says in the temple of God. Our praise, our worship, our giving have to remain because when they're taken away, judgment will follow. All right, let's stand together. I, I oftentimes have to remind myself, and I'm like many of you, when I listen to the news too much, I feel trepidation. I cannot believe what I see and what I hear. And then I need to go back and I need to tell myself, this is all in the plan of God. God told us these things were going to happen. He told us what our responsibility was. Just like Nehemiah gave them six things that they needed to obey, God's given us just some simple principles to follow. 
And if we obey those principles, we will prosper. We will prosper. Now, Lord Jesus, tonight, I, I thank you for your word. I'm thankful that you've given us something that we can hold in our hands and we can read to each other that encourages us that even as the days grow dark, that you have always provided a light. Thank you for listening to this Abundant Life Church podcast. We pray it has strengthened your relationship with God and will continue to be a light unto your pathway to heaven. If you have any questions or comments regarding this podcast, please telephone our ministerial team at 262-965-5177 or email us at info at abundantlifechurch.org.